Well, hey there, Todd. We're back again and continuing on uh, the life and times of Todd Van Beck. And we wrapped up <laughs> the last episode of you talking about how to become an unsuccessful funeral home owner. So <laughs> I'm, I'm an expert at that subject. Let okay. me tell you. Ask me anything. Ask me anything of how, of how not to do it. Right. <laughs> well, here, we'll, uh, we'll turn things to the brighter side and you're going to talk about thanatology. So uh, take it away, Todd. Well, thank you, Rob. And again, my appreciation to you for coming up with this project. I still have to pinch myself that anybody would be remotely interested in my uh, my story, but here we are, and uh, you've been so gracious to uh, work on this and put this thing together. So we kind of left off when the uh, funeral homes went down the tank, and then, but in the middle of that, <clears throat> in be, while I had these businesses, we have spoken about a man named Edgar Jackson before who was the my psychology professor when I was in mortuary school and who became a tremendous mentor and a life changer for a fellow like myself who was very insecure and uh, very questioning about his identity and who he was as a person. And so in the middle of this, Jackson had this idea. And, and I have to share this because I still believe the idea has merit. Right? And, and it, doesn't, it, it was that Jackson saw the funeral home as more than the organization that delivered goods and services for the care of the dead. Jackson saw a vision of what the funeral home could add. And to be sure, some funeral homes have done this. But Jackson's idea was that we needed to drop the word director in the title of the funeral director and replace it with the title funeral counselor because Jackson took the position, not, not, the, not a therapist where you change people's personalities, but a counselor. And Jackson's definition of counseling was anytime anybody helps somebody else with a problem, they're counseling. And you don't need a PhD for it. And you don't need to have all these highfalutin licenses and credentials. In fact, Jackson was very committed that most counseling, most counseling of where people are helping each other solve a problem is indeed done by non-credentialed human beings, right? The counseling experience is done with friends and possibly relatives and work associates. And I, I have to say, in my own lifetime, I have found that to be true, that most of the, in, uh, the uh, interactions that I've had when I 
was encountering personal problems and challenges was not uh, paying a counselor. I was uh, going into a colleague's office, a trusted colleague or calling a trusted friend up on the phone and pouring my heart out. It was not totally, it wasn't very sophisticated, I guess, but it, but it, it worked. So Jackson had this very liberal view of helping people and, and what his definition of counseling was. So Jackson's idea, right, was the funeral home is the ideal location for death counseling to take place. And he wasn't talking about making funeral arrangements, right? He was talking about grief seminars, aftercare programs, and this was in the 1970s, right? He was, he was pumping this stuff before anybody knew that aftercare was even a word, right? Let alone that funeral homes would embrace it. Uh, and the reason that he did this was that he was convinced, and I still believe he's accurate. It might have changed a little bit over the years, but the majority of individuals in the United States and in Canada who find themselves in the situation where they have a dead body that needs to be taken care of, they reach out to a funeral home. The vast majority of them, right? They, they don't reach out to hospice. They don't reach out to the church. They don't reach out because the hospice and church, they, they don't have the equipment. They don't have the facilities. And it isn't a power play. It's simply that the bulk of bereaved people in a condensed form congregated funeral homes. The, the population of grieving people, the, the majority of that is going to end up in the building of some funeral home uh, in North, um, North or England or New Zealand or Australia or Europe. It doesn't, you know, it's the same everywhere with this stuff. And so Jackson said, why not we, why not we take total advantage of this thing and that we train uh, the funeral professionals to not be directors because he was of the opinion that people didn't want to be directed necessarily. They wanted to be counseled. And I bought into that hook, line, and sinker. All right. Now, I'm not asking anybody that's listening to this to agree with that. But I, I, I took it hook, line, and sinker, and I still, to this day, think he was really spot on when it came to the expansion of the helping network of the average funeral home. Uh, I, I've often said that funeral as some of your listeners will know, funeral directors uh, have gotten consistently high marks in the Gallup polls over the years uh, for being the most trusted, honored, one of the most trusted, honored, respected professions uh, in the country. And so the question is, with all of the negative media that consistently attacks funeral service, 
for this and that. They don't like this. They don't like that. But the media has got a lot of stuff they don't like, uh, you know, that they are on the attack. But if you cut away all of that to kind of uh, media hype, the sensationalism, funeral homes get high marks. Uh, funeral directors particularly get high marks for their ability to counsel, right? They do it without even calling it counseling, right? And so Jackson was this uh, great proponent of, um, of having uh, within the funeral home structure, all of these avenues. Now, the good news is, is that many, many funeral homes have embraced that concept over the last 40 years, right? Uh, and that's a good thing. So in the midst of that, or that was, it's a good thing in my uh, humble opinion, uh, because I have found the funeral home that is positioning itself to do the most good, right, is the funeral home that is positioning itself to be the most successful in the future. In fact, I'll take it one more step. In my experience dealing with funeral homes, nothing good happens in funeral service until something first good happens in a funeral director's heart. All quality improvement in our profession, in my opinion, is based upon the funeral director's good heart. Now, they're, not all funeral homes are the same and not all funeral directors are the same. You know, we have some grumpy uh, funeral directors out there that the good heart has kind of vanished at times. But the vast majority of them, I have found to have kind hearts, they're good people. They do an excellent job. They work their ass off. Um, they, they are asked to deal with some of the most distasteful occurrences that happen in a community and do so with kindness and confidentiality and quiet dignity and then they move on. Uh, so it's a great strength. I think, uh, I, think the, I think there are thousands of people, Rob, that are walking around with better mental health after a loved one or somebody significant in their meaning of life has died because they had a, a, a wise, kind, thoughtful funeral director, funeral counselor, uh, helping them through. So in the middle of this, this, uh, this is kind of ancient history, but there was a period of time where the funeral profession embraced this idea of grief knowledge in a big way, right? So there was this period, this would be in the 70s and 80s, some part, maybe to the mid 90s, that, for instance, NFDA had uh, a clergy relations department, right, that they had, uh, they sponsored. I, I spoke for hundreds of clergy seminars, and I did clergy seminars up in Canada, uh, from uh, Halifax out to Vancouver. Um, and so you had this period, a 20-year period, so to speak, where the funeral directors, uh, you had these grief academies pop up. 
you had aftercare programs pop up that weren't product-centered, right? That weren't, they didn't have anything to do with caskets, didn't have anything to do with thumbies, didn't have anything to do, it, it was counseling. It was helping people. Um, and, and many funeral homes got on the bandwagon in, in a big way. So my, my work was I got hooked up with a man named Austin Kutcher. And Austin Kutcher was a professor, now get this one, he had a doctorate degree in dental psychiatry. Have you ever heard of a dental psychiatrist, right? Well, Austin Kutcher had one from Columbia University Medical School in New York City. And he and his wife, Lillian, got permission from the powers to be at Columbia to set up this organization called the Foundation of Thanatology. And that was my avenue into the world of grief work. Um, and uh, I, um, it was some of the most uh, growth-filled experiences of my life because Bill Kutcher um, ran these symposiums and they would put a call out for papers. And I remember the first article I ever got published in my life. I've still got it here in my library. Uh, was in 1977. And it was called Post-Funeral Service Counseling, The Challenge and the Opportunity. And I have to look at it. I, I remember when the book came, because Bill Kutcher would take all these papers that people submitted, right? And I had the same idea on the Funeral Service Historical Society, was to get all these papers together, edit them, so they're cohesive and made sense. And then he published this book. And I remember the first time I saw my name in print, I was absolutely thrilled. Now I hate to write, I hate to write, but I love being written, right? I love the finished product, but I hate to do it, right? It's just a, it's just like pulling nails, right? To uh, get my brain because um, I've never been skilled that way. I didn't do well in English. Uh, I wouldn't know a noun from a verb even to this very day. Uh, but when I saw that article, and I look at it now, and I have to tell you, it's the most ridiculous damn thing you've ever read in your life, right? Because I didn't know what I was talking about, but he published the thing, is the point. And so, th so what I'm leading to is these organizations, there were grief academies, there were grief symposiums, there were clergy relations seminars. The clergy relations seminars were in abundance. They were all over the place. But by the 2000s, by, by the 21st century, probably a little bit before that, maybe in the mid 90s, that whole enterprise of grief counseling and the funeral director being involved with this and there being formal training uh, besides the courses taught in the mortuary schools 
uh, began to fade. And, and so uh, what took over was technology, right? So instead of uh, the professional journals being uh, from cover to cover on embalming and grief counseling or grief, grief uh, knowledge, now that was the technology portion of it. So, you know, you, you look back, so the foundation died, right? When, and, you know, and I've seen that happen in our profession, that these, these organizations pop up, but they are dependent on one person. And when that one person is old or dies, the, the dream and the vision of the organization uh, dies with them. So I was involved with that for a number of years and it was very rewarding. Uh, I, I still have uh, files that I learned uh, from going, or, or, and actually I presented at the symposium um, and they would be at Columbia University in New York City, uh, up in the Upper West Side uh, or just right by, by the George Washington Bridge. Uh, and it was quite exciting to be involved with that. And I, I kind of miss that. And I don't, I don't see those organizations popping up. So in the middle of this, after the bankruptcy, then uh, dur during the bankruptcy, I got invited to the Cedar Rapids Rotary Club to give my Lincoln assassination and funeral program. And we were using carousel slides back then. And the Cedar Rapids Rotary Club met at the Roosevelt Hotel downtown. And it was a big one, right? There were probably a hundred people at the noon Rotary Club. You know, they ring the bell, they sing the happy Rotarian song. They say the Pledge of Allegiance. And then they have their rubber chicken um, and they hobnob and then there's the speaker. And so I was the speaker. And I have to say this, um, I've gotten a lot of mileage off that Lincoln program. I've been doing the Lincoln program for 47 years. And, and I, I've, I, it, it is without question the most frequently requested program that I give. Uh, even in Canada, uh, they like the Lincoln program. It's a hell of a story, right? It's a murder mystery and... Uh, it's like watching an episode of Snapped on the Discovery Channel, you know. Um, and so anyway, in the, at the Rotary Club, there was a man named John B. Turner there. And John Turner was the head of the John B. Turner and Son Mortuary in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So after I got done, John was a very stately looking man. Um, and I didn't know much about the Turner Mortuary, um, but I, uh, he came over to me after it was over and he said, why don't you come over to the east side? Uh, Turner's had two mortuaries, the east side and the west side. And I'd never been in the building before, but it, but I'd been by it. And honest to God, it was an impressive building. It had been an old mansion. In fact, the Sinclair and Douglas family had built it and they were relatives. Um, and um, the, um, 
the Douglas and Sinclair family uh, started Quaker Oats. And Quaker Oats headquarters is still in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So this was a great, so in the 1920s, John Turner's dad bought that, that mansion and remodeled it into a funeral home. And it was uh, very, very spectacular. So I went over there and John, John fortunately loved history. Uh, and John was uh, uh, very interested in the Lincoln thing. And so I'm telling you this because in the midst of the bankruptcy, uh, John Turner knew that I was in big trouble. And to his credit, uh, he called me up and asked if I would be interested in working for him at the funeral home in Cedar Rapids, which was about 34 miles away from where I had my funeral home. And so the blessing of this was that John Turner basically saved my family from starving, right? Because even though the funeral home that I had was going through bankruptcy, I was gainfully employed. And John Turner, which is touching, looking back at his memory, he's been gone for many years now, never said one word to me about the bankruptcy, not one. And I learned a tremendous amount about being a kind, considerate, gentle funeral director uh, from John Turner. Now, there were seven funeral homes in Cedar Rapids. And at, when I was there, the Turner Mortuary did 55% of all the funerals in Lynn County. The other six funeral homes split 45% of the market share. We did 800 funerals uh, a year uh, through the Turner Mortuary. And it was um, a tremendous uh, experience uh, being with that company. Uh, because they um, they had a they had a system that was just foolproof as far as that went. So anyway, at Turner's there was a an embalmer named w uh, Willis Wilson, and we called him Willie Wilson. And Bill Wilson, I ended up a pallbearer at his funeral when he died. And Bill Wilson, uh, he became. And this is, I was telling the stories about counseling. Uh, Bill Wilson became my bankruptcy counselor. Uh, I would spend the night with him uh, because I couldn't drive back home because sometimes we get a call, have to embalm a body at 1030 at night. And I'd bunk out at Willie's and, and he'd pull out a bottle of Canadian Club and a little bit of 7-Up. Uh, we use that for moral purposes and uh, we'd start drinking and I would start crying and pour my heart out to Bill Wilson. Uh, and he proved Jackson's theory that um, counseling is anytime somebody else helps somebody uh, with a, a problem. So, so that's the story of um, those years of my career, Rob. Well, once again, Todd, very touching reflection on on that time and, and a tough, you know, you, it seems that you have multiple things going on at the same time where you've got this 
negative bankruptcy going on and you're worried about your reputation but then at the same time you're getting recognized for your writing and which then turns into presentations which then lead you to introductions to these people that have had a profound effect on on your life so just amazing stories todd so what um well, thank you. what will we talk about in the next episode well uh it's another transition uh, uh because uh in 1982 uh 1982 was uh, a game changer and i'll uh, explain that in our uh, next segment you bet okay thanks todd yep thank you <laughs>